The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Living Well with Ann Beal. Our show is a health show, a lifestyle show, and an empowerment show rolled into one. Get ready to hear some stories of success, healthy living tips, and suggestions to get motivated and live your best life. Now, here is your host, Ann Beal. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Living Well. We are actually in Frisco, Texas today, me with Dr. Jenny Easton. And we are welcoming you to the I'm Still Celebrating episode of Living Well. If you have ever felt the heaviness of desperation or struggled to bounce back from tragedy and loss, our guest today will strengthen and empower you. Dr. Jenny Easton's come through infertility, grief, depression, and addiction. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, I know you have a little bit of stomach flu today. Uh, yeah. But I appreciate you pushing through for me. Yes. Well, you have the issues of infertility, grief, depression, and addiction that you're going to talk about. That's quite a bit today. Yes. Yeah. I, I've, I've been given several trials uh, and also several victories. And so, uh, yeah, my life has been full so far, and who knows what's next. But, um, yes, those those things have gone on in my life. I have not personally been an addict, but a child of an addict. Child of an addict. That's right. Yes. Mm. Well, and you grew up in San Antonio, yeah. Texas, right? Yeah, I did. And so growing up with a dad who was an alcoholic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. You know, nobody knew that my dad was an alcoholic. He was uh, a very successful businessman, and he had impeccable manners. And uh, he was just a sharp guy. And, um, you know, something happened in his life, and he didn't know what to do with his pain. He, you know, my mother... Um, got pregnant and she carried the child all the way full term and Christopher my um, brother was born stillborn mm. and you know they had to take down the nursery and so my dad lost uh, the son he always wanted and when that happened he he really didn't have the tools uh, really didn't know what to do with all of that pain and so he just began to drink it down yeah and what started as maybe an inability to sleep and an inability to cope became an addiction. And, of course, uh, people who are touched by addiction or, or who are uh, an addict know that addictions uh, erode every part of your life very slowly. And so um, I did. I, I witnessed that for years. Um, it was a heaviness in my heart, and it was uh, a very high prayer um, that I prayed that God would free him from that tight web. So, you know, that was something that was going on, but certainly not something that we talked about and not certainly anything anybody knew. So, wow. hmm. so how do you think that um, built your character? Well, when you come out of a less than perfect situation, you begin to, to wonder who you can trust and who you can talk to. And I began to wonder if God was worth trusting. 
And, uh, you know, my mom was taking me to church on her own. My dad had no interest. And so, you know, I just, um, I saw things other people didn't see. I had deeper thoughts and few abilities to cast my insights. So I think in terms of shaping my character, um, I think it pushed me into a place where I wanted to write and get these things out regardless. I really wanted to be healthy emotionally. Um, and I wanted to be able to talk about things regardless if they were embarrassing or, or shameful. And I wanted to know that there was a God that was trustworthy. And so I began to cast this hope um, for my father to be free upon the Lord and ask him to do what I could not do. So did you have a diary as a child? Oh, I did. Did you? I sure did, and I tried to lock it up because my mom, you know how moms are when you're, you're in middle school. Oh, you're no, in, no, not me. No. <laughs> well, my mom, <laughs> my mom went after that diary. So uh, so you didn't have a, um, a what do they call it, a, a, a what are they? <laughs> it's like a cover diary. I've had teens tell me they have one that they put that is real, not real obvious place. Yeah. And it says all these wonderful things. So that oh, they no. don't look for the other one. <laughs> didn't well, think of that. No. I didn't either. No. When I was writing, it was about things that were real uh, to me. And so, no, it was, I, I tried to hide it. And then, of course, at that time, we didn't have computers. And that would have been a great way to, to do it. I, I work that way now. But, um, yeah, I, I did. I had a diary. So you wrote in your diary a lot. I did. Did it help you? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I, you know, I'm a big believer that if you can speak the truth, you know, it, shame and um, unhealth lives in the darkness. And I believe that if you can get it out in the light, if you have somebody that you can, you know, talk to or tell, or just even a private place where you can mark uh, those ideas down, I think you're on your way uh, to being healthier. So what happened when your mom found your diary? Did she talk to you about the things she read? (laughs) Well, my mom um, desperately wanted my situation and our situation at the house to to look good. And that's, um, it was hard for her to hear the truth. And I'd asked her questions before and she denied there was a problem. And I don't blame her for that. It was simply what she needed to do to survive a very difficult situation. She certainly would not wish for me to have um, a father who was addicted to alcohol. And so, really, those conversations did not happen in full until I was much older. As and, an adult. Yes, mm-hmm. and I actually took the initiative to go uh, to counseling and seek help, regardless of what other people were going to do uh, in their own lives, because that's what I wanted for me. Now, you went on to college. Yeah, yeah. So, you were an only child. Yeah. And so, you were still motivated to get out of the house, go off, and now, did you go to college and live there? Yeah, I did. Uh, My dad sent me to Baylor. Oh, really? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. You know, he said, I got to pick, and so I went and visited several universities, and then he said, well, uh, if you want me to pay, then you'll need to choose Baylor. (laughs) So, that was pretty easy. Baylor in Waco, Texas. Uh, Yeah. It's a good school. Really yeah. good school. That's what he thought. And so he really chose that for me because he felt like I would be surrounded by, you know, quality people and have the Christian influence. By the time he sent me to school, he had become a Christian and really? uh, had started visiting church. And so 
um, that had become one of one of his priorities, miraculously. That is miraculous. Truly yes. miraculous. Yes. So did Baylor turn out the way he planned it to? No. No. <laughs> no, it didn't. Uh, and it's, it's something, actually, I kind of re- regret about my life because I had a certain set of pain from that background, and I wasn't prepared to to participate in full um, as one would want to. You know, um, I was given this fabulous opportunity, and, and there were neat people around me, and I felt um, a certain depression, a certain shame uh, because of what I had seen and where I had come from. And so I was at the beginning of making a decision what I was going to do with my pain, whether mm-hmm. I was going to drink it down or whether I was going to turn it over or, or what I was going to do. And so Baylor was really just kind of a pivotal um, time in my life. Or, of course, I got, I got a degree there, um, but I also made some decisions there. What decisions did you make there? I made a decision that I would not drink it down. Which is a lot of students drink it down. <laughs> well, I did. I did drink it down. But I made a decision one particular day that I would not drink it down and become what my father was. Oh, you remember that. Yeah. Actually doing that. Yeah. I have, it, was a, it was a day uh, that, uh, that I made that decision. I was listening to my radio and Margaret Becker, who's a singer, um, there was a song on the radio and it says, um, just come in. I just lay that right here. Love does not care. And I thought, well, wow. <laughs> Love that doesn't care about my shame and about um, my guilt and about my depression. Just unconditional love. Um, and I, I really took that to heart and, and felt like, you know, I was going to focus my life differently. So how did you do that? You chose not to drink it down in college. So mm-hmm. what did you end up choosing instead? Um, well, I chose to, um, get some medical help for the depression. Um, I chose to journal it out. Good. I chose to surround myself with people who could handle the real truth about me and about my life. So I had an ability to seek out the safety in other people. And I surrounded myself with really, really safe people and made my world kind of small, you know. And that, that, you were able to do that at Baylor. Baylor's pretty big, right? It is. Yeah, it's yes. big. Um, and maybe, you know, quite a few people there aren't so real or aren't so comfortable with talking about hard things. But yet you found some, some people there that really you could do that with. And there were more people that I could have done that with than I realized. Yeah, definitely. I would have believed that. Yeah. And uh, so, like I said, I, I have some regrets from that time in my life because, you know, there there were others. That, and you said you were an introvert. That yeah. you are an that yeah. you uh, your Myers Briggs is like what well, not Myers Briggs. Yeah, but you're an yeah. IN. TJ, what, what did you say? You were INB? INFJ. INFJ. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So an introvert. Yeah. So you didn't, introverts tend to have a smaller group of friends, but friends, long-time friends yes, usually. Yes, true. Deeply long-term. Mm-hmm. And um, extroverts might have a lot of friends mm-hmm. that come and go through their life, mm-hmm. you know, but introverts, it's amazing how long they have friends, these friends forever. That's true. And so that's wonderful. So you got your bachelor's in? 
right. in special education. Special education. Yeah, I did. Now, how long before you went back and got your master's? Oh, I, I jumped straight into that. Um, I moved up to uh, Dallas because my dad and my whole family had been relocated from San Antonio up to Dallas. And so, of course, then that became my new home. And I'd become very interested in helping kids who had special needs. In fact, there was one young lady, I don't know her name, but she was a drug baby. And I felt, I guess, some connection to her because she was given an unfortunate circumstance. Sure. And yet required to function in the world, in the school, in the school classroom, just like everybody else. And I thought, you know, that's really not fair. I'd like to step in and be that bridge for her. And so um, when I finished my bachelor's, I realized I knew some things, but not enough. Mm-hmm. And it just, uh, a master's became the natural extension of my interest in helping these kids. And so I went to UNT and um, did a master's in behavioral um, disorders and administration. And so I just put some more tools in my two belt. It is interesting that when you become passionate about an area, yeah. the more you learn, mm. the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> yeah, so you true. realize the more you need to learn. That's it. Um, so did you go directly into your doctorate then after you got your master's? You know, I took a year off, I believe, um, between the two. And I took a little break. And, you know, I was I was super focused once I found my area. And I was driven and I was an achiever and... Definitely. And so I was going to say this, right? Achiever, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was it was a rude awakening, though, starting my doctorate because it was a whole new game. But it was still at University yeah. of North Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, how was it different? Well, the expectations were that you knew what was expected and that you were going to produce this perfect piece of writing, and mm. and you had so many items on your syllabus to accomplish that if you were not an Type A out front person, you were going to get swallowed up by this degree. Wow. So it really, you know, I had to change the way that I thought and the way that I produced. Um, Definitely going from an introvert to what, being a speaker now and a writer. Mm. A writer, you can stay an introvert. Yeah. You know, speakers kind of have to come out of that comfort zone. Mm. So you've since gotten married. Mm. So when did you get married? While you were in school mm. or after school? Well, I was in school. Yeah, I was halfway through my doctorate oh, when David doctorate. and I yeah, I got married, and and then I, you know, I think we had a conversation at one time. Should I continue or should I not? And he said you should, and I did. And he was supportive of that. So that took me, I think, about four and a half years. To, to get complete. your doctorate? Yeah. That's wonderful. I mean, it sounds like a long time, <laughs> but people, if they've been through it, yeah. they know it's much harder than just going for a short amount of time, getting your dissertation done and getting out. Yeah, yeah it's an endurance race for yes. sure. Yeah, it is. It is, and that's why it was just so sweet at the end when I got to deliver those last pieces of paper to my professor, and it was so sweet when I got to walk across the stage and, you know, have my family there cheering. It was just a, it was a great victory, you know, when you put so much of yourself into something. It's just really worth celebrating at the end, and, and we did. So what did you do with that degree? Well, I worked for two different school districts, and um, I worked with with kids who needed help, with those who were not succeeding in the classroom without intervention. I created behavioral plans and just worked with their teachers, let them 
know that, you know, we were going to do our best to support them and, you know, say positive things, you know. So what do you call that person? Because that's not a teacher. Mm, yeah. Um, what position is that? What would you call that? Well, they called it at one time a crisis interventionist or, okay. uh, yeah, or a behaviorist. And it, it's different from a counselor in that, you know, I don't sit down with kids and say, how do you feel about all this? I just say, in order to get things done, you need this set of skills. And so this is how we operate. It's um, very predictable. If you want to be successful with me, this is how we interact. And this is how you'll interact with your teachers. And so I taught those skills directly. We did a lot of practicing. I gave them a lot of feedback. So I did that um, for two years for one school district and then was called by another one. to, And they asked me if I'd be interested in opening up an alternative school Hmm. uh, in a school district where at that time they really didn't want to admit they had any problems at all. So that was very interesting. Yes, definitely. Very interesting. Yeah, it was. So we came together as a team and created that school and gave it a name and and a culture. You know, that's amazing that you, when you talk about your childhood Mm. and the way you felt, Mm. that it created this writing desire in you to put everything down on paper. And, And then you you know, went to Baylor Mm. because your dad wanted you to. And yet what a great background for where you were going from there. Because Baylor's a tough school. It's not super easy. No. And um, you avoided the severe alcohol binging that can just Mm. blow college for so many kids. Mm -hmm. Um, You had a taste of it. You turned away from it. That's it. And um, decided to lead a different path. Yes. But doctorates, to get your doctorate, there's so much research in writing. You have mm. to love writing, and you have to be a good, I mean, I would say a pretty good writer by then. Yeah. And so it's like you took this um, energy, mm. and you targeted it towards a dream and a passion, though you weren't exactly sure what that was. You yeah. just kept doing where you were led at the time. Yeah, yeah. And look where you ended up. That's pretty incredible. Did you ever think when you were small that you would get your doctorate? No. I, I know. Well, I would never dream of it because, you know, I, I, who would know what that is anyway? But, um, no, I, and anybody who knew me in, in younger years would have never um, pegged me for that um, that place in life, you right. know. But it, it really was, as you say, a passion of mine to learn more. And so then it became easier for me. Well, and you got married in that time. Mm. And um, because we definitely want to get into what happened after that Mm. with you going through this natural progression to have children. Mm -hmm. Um, The infertility Mm. really was a tough, I mean, you look at how you endured so much Mm. um, and got married and had all these dreams for the future. Mm -hmm. And then started wanting to have children. Yeah, absolutely. How, How quickly after you got married? Would you say? Well, I got married knowing that I wanted David to be the father of our children because, you know, I looked at my past and it was never comfortable in my home to crawl up in my dad's lap and, you know, just be. Well, when I met David, everything changed, you know. Um, He put my soul at rest and I thought, oh, Lord, thank you for this. This is what I want for my kids a very safe place. So before we ever got married, it was something that I could envision. Well, and we will come back right after break to mm. talk more about that. Mm. What happened after that mm. and um, how you endured to really 
let people know about infertility and what you suffered. And so we'll come back right after the break and um, we'll see you right after the commercial with Living Well. Great. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com There are 13 unbreakable habits of truly enlightened people. These life-changing habits are discussed on Dream the Life, Live the Dream with Dr. Yomi Garnett. We'll offer an excursion in self-discovery along with wisdom that will allow you to stay on the correct path toward your destiny. You can find excellence in your life. Tune in every Thursday at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time. That's 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for this exciting transformational journey. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Absurd Psychology, Straight Answers Without All the Bull, hosted by Dr. Gary Bell. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Empowerment. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are listening to Living Well with Ann Beal. We'd love to hear from you with comments and questions about the show. Please send us an email to ablivingwell at gmail.com. That's ablivingwell at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Living Well. We are uh, talking about infertility and grief um, and being transformed in miraculous ways. Mm. And I have Dr. Jenny Easton here. Um, Dr. Jenny, Mm. (laughs) can you let the listeners know how to get a hold of you? What would be the best way? I've been waiting till the end, but if they're listening to this segment, they will not hear that. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Well, I have a website, and that's a good first start, and that's www.jennyeaston.com, and I spell my name a little bit different. It's J-E-N-N-I, and then E-A-S-T-I-N.com. You can go there, or you could start at hopehasavoice.com. That's kind of my parent ministry. And um, there are ways to contact me through the site or you can email me at admin at jennyeaston.com. So So you have lots of ways to be contacted. And Jenny speaks all over the world. Um, She would love to speak in any of the topics that you hear. Um, And so let's get back to Mm -hmm. what we were talking about because you got married Mm -hmm. and then you were going to start your life. You you married this wonderful man that would be a great father to your children. Yes. And you, you, when you picked him, because how old were you when you got married? 27. Oh, so you planned. Look at you. 27. 27. You did well. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so you were ready. You were ready to have kids. How often, I mean, how, how much time did it take before you got married till you started really planning children well we got married and we did a lot of traveling and we had a fun time and I was in the middle of finishing this degree and so that obviously was not the time to have kids no. and so as soon as I graduated I, I think I was 
five days shy of 30 when I graduated with my Ph.D., at 30, we looked at each other and said, okay, now it's it's time to start a family. And so, you know, we did what every other couple does. You know, we charted the, the days and, uh, you know, worked towards that goal. And how did that go? It was sad. It was, it was um, really, really sad. You know, we were involved in a Sunday school class and there were 13 other couples and we watched one by one every single one of those couples um, turn up pregnant and just wondered why you know things were not working for us and those who have been through infertility understand that it's a different kind of grief it's a grief of not being able to control the process it's a grief of not understanding um you know, it, and then came the tests and all the research, and I grieved the lack of normalcy in my life. So how long did it take before you started being told you were infertile? Well, they give you about a year, and then they send you off to a specialist. So I found myself sitting in a specialist's office and uh, talking directly to a doctor and, and receiving the news that the chances of me becoming pregnant were almost impossible, slim to none. Was that because of your age? being Because mm-hmm. you were 30 by then, right? Yeah, I was 31 at that time. 31. And they ran some different tests, and they can tell how your reproductive system is is working and whether or not you're going to be a good candidate for, you know, treatment like in vitro. And what they saw is I had advanced reproductive aging. So for whatever reason, um, the things in my body that should be working were working more like if I had been 43 years old or 45 rather than 31. So it became obvious that time um, was of the essence and we would need to move along quite quickly. That was very frustrating, I'm sure, because you know there's women that have children in their 30s and some women that have children in their 40s, which is quite late, but it is um, possible for some women. It, It seems like most women, by the time they're 30, it's much harder, though. Yeah, and I I don't know. You know, I'm not a doctor, and even still, I, I wanted to trust that God has a plan for each of us, you know, whether you're 30 or 25 or 40 or whatever. I knew that my plan was unique for my life, and I just, I had no way of seeing how this was going to resolve. And I felt like I was captured in this very small space. And no matter how hard I wanted to get out of this place and see the future, I was still in that space. And it really, um, it did frustrate and confuse me because, as I told you, I was an achiever. And when I wanted things to happen, I worked very hard. Mm -hmm. And this was one thing that on my own, I could not budge. I literally could not budget couldn't make it happen Mm-mm. so is no. that when your depression set in you think well I think there's a, a certain grief that goes along with it I, I wouldn't say that I I was depressed at that time I was very very quiet I spent quiet. a lot of time yes um I did a lot of research I spent a lot of time reading my bible I would just open up the book and just ask God to tell me some stories and he did about barren land and brokenness and longing and what he could do with these small spaces. 
And so I, you know, I just journeyed it out. It was long. It was hard. Um, and there were a lot of no's when yes. I wanted there to be a yes. So you tried the, the um, in vitro? Mm-hmm. What all did you try? Yeah. So understanding we would need to move quite quickly, we went through the first in vitro attempt, and they did everything they could to help me. And they, you know, recruit these eggs, and then they put it in the Petri disk and dish, and then they implanted it back in me. And I had good quality embryos. They tested it and everything. It's amazing what they can do uh, today. But they would implant these babies in me, and then there would be a no on the pregnancy test. So that was cycle one, in vitro number one, there was a no. Uh, In vitro cycle two, there was twin boys that were inserted back into me, and that was a no. Mm. There was one girl from the second cycle um, that was held back um, and frozen because they won't they won't put in any more than two at a time. Mm-hmm. So she was frozen. Oh God! And uh, yeah, I'm waiting. Yeah, yes, she's frozen at the bottom of a nitrogen tank, and it, people could not understand that unless I actually show a picture of what a nitrogen tank looks like. But um, and then we did a third cycle with a different doctor. David encouraged me to move my records over to another doctor and try a little different protocol. And from that cycle. Um, the babies were recruited, and before they could be put back into my body, a polyp, which is a small skin tag, had developed in my uterus, and they were unable to place those babies back into my body. Wow. So they had to stop um, the cycle and, and freeze those babies as well. So I had you know one little girl from the second cycle and then several embryos from the third cycle that were frozen at that time. And none of them took, as we say. None of them mm. were viable. Yeah, yeah. You know, we lost a lot of, a lot of, a lot of babies, and we knew that they were good quality babies because they're able to do this pre-genetic diagnostic testing, which tells them the quality of that baby. There's no abnormalities, uh, trisomies or anything. So, you know, the technical side of it. Mm. You know, when you hear the technical side of it, you you don't really get what you were going through emotionally mm-hmm. you and your husband true how long of a time was this at least four years wow four years of up and down and thinking and it would up and down and up and down right right and um, it's a, a real commitment going through all of this you know you have to travel to the facility every other day and they take your blood and uh, the gals will use their sonogram to measure the follicles, the developing eggs. And all of this is just, you know, you're really just at the mercy of the process. And you're following a calendar on your fridge and and just hoping it would work. You know, just investing, you know, all of your time and your thoughts and your hopes in this process. But you didn't give up. Well, I think it, I wanted to. Do you want it to? Well, I think, but I think I did because... I had no vision for how things would turn out. Um, David urged me to go through the third cycle. And had I not utterly loved him (laughs) and really hoped for him to be a father, I think I would have just, you know, taken a bow. I would have just, you know, checked out on the whole thing. But um, because that was his wish, that's what we did. So that last one really 
wouldn't have been what you would have done? What would you have done if, if you had, if you were ready to give up? Would you have adopted? What would you have done? I still don't know the answer to that. Oh, you've been asked that before. Well, I don't know because when you're in these situations, you think of things that you'd never thought of before. Mm-hmm. You know, and other people would ask me, what would you do? And I, I still don't know. You know, there was talk of egg donors and there was talk of adoption. And it, literally, I really didn't know. I would just have rested. Rested. Mm-hmm. Rested. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening? What did you end up doing? Well, you know, we have these frozen babies now, and uh, the doctors were telling me that my immune system was the problem, and if they gave me this drip in my arm, an IV, this immune-regulating drug, I would be the same as every other woman, and my body would be able to carry now these children. And I I heard that information. I didn't believe that. Mm. I, I didn't believe it in full because I know the immune system is volatile. And so that scared me, and I felt like, you know, God had entrusted me with these little lives. I needed to, needed to find the highest and best, the safest place for them to grow. So you wanted to make sure that they came into the world well, healthy, and and you didn't want to chance that. No, I, I, I just wanted to, to make a decision that I would not regret, and put them in a position where they could flourish if God had intended them to. And so it just interestingly enough came about that uh, one of my clients, my real estate clients, was a surrogate mom. Wow. That is incredible. Well, it is. Yes, it is. The whole thing is incredible. And it was a journey. And so she said, have you considered this? And I said, well, no, I haven't until now. And so she began walking me through this process and actually uh, helped me find um, the first surrogate mother. Um, she was living in Houston, and we were up here in Dallas. And, you know, we just we hit it off and uh, became fast friends, and I trusted her. I trusted the way that she took care of her body. She had, I think at that time, five children, healthy children. And she was a proven carrier. And so uh, we chose her. David and I both did. We, we interviewed the family and got to know them. We chose her. And then we started another process, which was a legal process of making sure that un- everybody understood that these children that would be implanted were uh, legally the children of David and myself. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's really a lot more to it that people don't realize. Oh, sure. First, you find a surrogate mom. So there is a way to do that. There's a process that's, that you go through that this lady who came to your real estate um, business mm-hmm. new, mm-hmm. and so she kind of indoctrinated you in what goes on with that, yes. and um, that was very encouraging. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes it was yes. light on my path, yeah. right? And it was a blessing that you're yeah. that God brought that to you. Um, and so then you found a mom that yes. was uh, a carrier. Yes, and uh, she had five wonderful children, you know, five yes. very healthy children. Yes, and so you went ahead and she carried your baby, both babies. One at a time? uh, She carried one. Okay. Um, The third recruit had produced a a couple of frozen embryos, and so it's just amazing. I I really, I wish that you could have been there because it was sacred. Um, They rehydrate these cells, and they begin to grow in a Petri dish. Wow. After 
two years of being frozen in a nitrogen tank. And then they, they take these cells, these embryos, and they feed them up in a tube and place them specifically into the uterus of another woman after she has prepared her body to be a receptor for this life. So they've created, you know, a healthy environment in her uterus. So it was a big commitment for her, too. And it's very medical as far and technical, what <laughs> yeah. they do with her, even, mm-hmm. to get her, her uterus ready. Yeah, and she had no guarantees that it was going to take. So it was, it was blind obedience on her part. Wow. And, um, yeah, we are, we are forever grateful. There is, there's no way that I can uh, live long enough to tell her what great joy she has filled my life with. She carried Grant uh, from the third cycle. She actually got pregnant with two. One fell out, and uh, a great big hemorrhage actually um, threatened to take Grant's life, but even in the womb, God's hand was on him. She delivered him on July 18th of 08, and uh, we were, you know, in Houston. Oh, my gosh. I was just thinking about it the other day. I was just thinking about what a glorious day it was uh, when Grant was born. And I, you know, she birthed this child, and I knew that he was mine. I mean, I knew logically. Oh, gosh, yes. With everything that you guys had gone through, Mm. um, that was just incredible. And I see the light as you light up as you're telling the story. You know, it's pretty fascinating. And I I know that people that haven't been through that really just don't understand. So if um, your first child was born when? July 18th of 08. And when did, so when did you start this journey of children, trying to have children, that whole thing? 2004. Oh, goodness. Yeah, our 2003. Three, 2003. You had no idea what was ahead of you when you started that. Oh, no. No way. And and no way to know how it was going to end when we went through it. And that was just so difficult. And your dad was sober at the time, had gotten sober and become a Christian. And he was at the hospital when this baby was born, right? Yes. That is amazing. It is the most divinely appointed event that I have ever been a part of. Uh, because my father uh, had been sober for 14 months, and he checked himself into a facility in Grapevine and got the help that he needed and support. And mm. I, I just strongly recommend that for other people, um, for them to, to really get professional help. Professional. But, yeah. But he had done that. He'd been sober, and I was enjoying him so much, his presence and his kindness, and really just discovering who he was underneath all the layers, all those years of addiction. So it was it was a blessing to have him sober, and then even more so uh, to have them at the him at the hospital when this baby was born, and knowing that many years before he had lost his own son, and yet he saw this son, mine, being delivered into the world, happy and whole. And and he knew the whole process that you had been through, oh, your family. Is. Yes. Yes. So they were probably, it was such a grateful, wonderful blessing. That that whole um, coming about for Grant. Mm. And Grant knows what a miracle he is. Well, in many ways, yes. <laughs> he does because we don't fail to tell him 
what a blessing he is and how grateful we are. In terms of the the medical and the technical, all mm-hmm. of this, you know, this has not been shared with him yet. And it won't make a difference one way or the other. He's as normal as any other child. He has a unique story, and at the right time, we'll share it with him. But uh, I can see why. that That is so neat. And mm-hmm. when we come back from break, we will go into what happened after the baby was born mm-hmm. and just go into some more grief and loss and then success mm-hmm. and overcoming and mm-hmm. enduring to really uh, motivate and empower you guys out there. Yes. So after the break, we want to hear you back soon. Just meet you back here at Living Well with Ann Beal. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. What makes you the best you can be? Is it money? Is it success? Maybe it's love, a good career, home and family. Could it be a bit of all of these things? Be the best you can be with Dr. Linda Sanicola, along with her featured guests, will bring you the tools that could be the answer to the questions you've been asking. You'll get to the root of some of the problems that have been keeping you from being the best you can be and tackle them head on. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You have the power within to achieve anything, be it wealth, balance in your life, getting over your fears and roadblocks, and creating a positive impact on the world. Let Darby Mack show you how on the powerful, passionate, prosperous woman show. Darby will bring you the tools and tips that you need to make it all happen with engaging guests and topics that will help you make your dreams come true. The powerful, passionate, prosperous woman show is heard live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Living Well with Ann Beal. We'd love to hear from you with comments and questions about the show. Please send us an email to ablivingwell at gmail.com. That's ablivingwell at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. This is Ann Beal in Frisco, Texas with Dr. Jenny Easton. We just finished in the last segment talking about Jenny coming through infertility and um, placing in vitro embryos in a surrogate mom. Yes. And um, these two embryos that have been frozen in a nitrogen tank and then uploaded into a syringe and yeah. put it to the yeah. baby right. and and Grant was born so yes. that was very exciting and your dad all sober from his alcohol addiction yes uh, 14 months you said yeah yeah he was there he was involved um, it was just such a wonderful family blessing for the whole family mm-hmm. um, and so we wanted to pick up from there mm-hmm. and um, such a great time Mm-hmm. That, that would be a mountaintop time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what? Oh, yes. And, you know, I we went to Niagara Falls, David and I did, and I had a picture taken of me just um, with the water falling behind and me just looking up into the sky and, and smiling and celebrating. And I actually had that pr- that picture printed out, and I gave it to everybody 
that I knew. And I said, you know, when people ask you how I'm doing, will you let them know that I'm celebrating on the mountaintop? God has done what no man could have done for me. And that's part of the topic I'm still celebrating. Yes. Right? And that picture on your website. Yes. When your hands are up. Is that from then? That's it. Oh, my gosh. That's an awesome picture. I love it. Well, okay. So that was wonderful. Mm. So when did you go to Niagara Falls? How far after that? Oh, well, we we took a a trip as a couple to Niagara Falls uh, while Grant was being carried. Oh! So, yeah, we were expectant, you know, and we knew that this uh, surrogate mother had everything taken, you know, she was taking care of everything, and and so we just enjoyed ourselves um, uh, for the last moments being a couple. That's Yeah, actually, I'm glad you did that because Mm -hmm. people don't realize, do they, that when their first child comes? Oh, um. It changes a lot. It changes. <laughs> and did you fall in love with your child um, and more than your husband? <laughs> did I love my child more than I, my you husband? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Men sometimes feel like they have this wonderful wife and they have all this time together and everything's so wonderful. Then this wonderful, cute, adorable, mm-hmm. just incredible <laughs> yeah, yeah. being is bored yeah, yeah. and, and you have no idea. I mean, you just aren't prepared for how wonderful that is. And um, and lots of moms mm. can forget their husbands at times. You know, they just throw themselves into being a mom and they forget their husbands are there, kind of. Well, I re- I'm, possibly I was different. I really needed him. Uh, when we brought this child home from the, hus- from the hospital, I, I said, now, David, remind me, what is my job as a mother? And he said, well, you... You feed the child, and you <laughs> bathe them, and when they cry, and I said, okay, thank you for the reminder, because I had not been schooled in motherhood, and so I knew that I should be doing a lot of things, but none of it really came natural for me, and so we really worked through it together. I wouldn't say that I was immediately just overwhelmed with, you know, the know-how and this this fierce love for my son, it really grew as he grew. As he grew. Yes. Well, and, you know, we took a class before. I I was the youngest of many children, and I had been taken care of. I had not taken care of any children. Mm -hmm. So, like, my older sister, who was seven years older than me, she took care. You know, I mean, she helped a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, My brothers did, too. I did not. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so for me, I had no idea, and I was freaking out. So Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm going to go take a class. So I took this class the first year from zero to 12 months. Mm-hmm, and then yeah. after that, I was like, is there another class? Yeah. 12, one day, 12 month and one day, two. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so for you, yeah, you don't know. No. You don't naturally know. There are some people who kind of, they've taken care of their little brothers and yeah. sisters yeah. and they know how. And so for you also, since you hadn't been the one delivering the child, yeah. you didn't have that body recovery you had mm-hmm. to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I was wondering if you went to Niagara, not no. you know soon after that, but you had a newborn baby to take care of. Yeah, yeah. I did, and you know, I didn't have the experience of, of birthing him. Mm-mm. Luckily, my surrogate had just an overwhelming desire to let me be a part of the process, and so David and I recorded ourselves singing songs and reading books, and um, the surrogate wore a, um, gosh, I don't know, if it was like an iPod or MP3 or something on her belly, and, you know, let the baby hear this, because one of my greatest hopes was after this baby was born and I began to speak that 
he would recognize my voice. That is a neat thing. I wonder, do they yeah. always do that? Oh, no. It was really something that she gifted me with, was allowing me to be, you know, really a personal part of the carrying process. We attended most all of the uh, appointments, and, you know, I was I was concerned about my son in terms of him being healthy. I was equally concerned about about her and making right. sure she was, you know, felt cared for and loved and all of that. Well, I wanted to talk about what happened a few days after, I guess it was like 28 days after the baby was born. You mean with my father? Yes. Mm, Well, you know, um, my father began having some problems. He was feeling, um, he was feeling weak. And not able to, um, he didn't have the energy to sustain tasks anymore. So I'd ask him, hey, Dad, can you stop by after you go to Lowe's and, you know, hang out with Grant and I? And I could tell by his voice, he was he was a little bit saddened to have to tell me, you know, Jen, can we do that another day? It's just, I really want to, but I think I need to come and rest. And it was very unlike him. He was a very yeah. hardy uh, man. And so... You know, you don't ever want to think the worst. And, but we did notice, you know, that things had changed. And the next thing I knew, they were putting him asleep and looking with scopes down into his abdomen. And um, the next thing I knew, my mother was telling me, you know, um, we there's some cancer involved here. And she began to tell me the different parts of his body that were affected. And at one point, I just, you know, put up my finger to say, I understand you have more to share, but I simply have had enough. Uh, I'm going to just stop this conversation at this point. I would think that would be overwhelming because basically what she was telling you is he had cancer throughout his whole body. That's true. That's true. And that would came out of nowhere. That's true. Because you didn't have any idea. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we really had no idea that that was coming, and uh, it was certainly not the last thing that I would have expected to, to deal with. I had a two-and-a-half-month-old son, and now this news that cancer was all through him. It was stage four. Everybody understands stage four cancer is, is the worst news that you can receive. And uh, we knew our time was limited. I found myself asking the doctors very pointed questions. And I'm not sure I'd do it that way again, because I was not prepared for the answers. You know, I was asking, okay, since we have this, what are we going to do? You know, what is the, what what is the result of this cancer? You know, how long does my father have? Because with your personality mm. and your, the achiever personality, mm. you'll just work hard, you'll do what you have to do. Mm. Um, your body would have probably gone into shock a little bit, I would think. So you were kind of numb. Um, just tell me what to do and we'll do it. Just Yeah, yeah. Know. Give me the information, you know, hit me straight on with it, and we'll deal with it. And were they hitting you straight on? The doctor took me aside <laughs> and said, you know, uh, your father's on a journey, and uh, you are going to just go along with him on his journey. He said, you've asked very pointed questions, and I think you deserve answers, and so I'll tell you. Uh, he has no more than six months, and more like a month. More like a month. More like a month. Mm. 
And so um, I shared that information with my mom. Who I, I literally could see it flying over her head. It was just not making contact. Uh, that might not have been a bad thing. I mean, for mm-hmm. her, she just couldn't cope with that. Yeah, and we all deal with it in different ways. So did he pass within a month? Yeah, he um, he passed 28 days later. It, that's where the 28 days Yeah, was. 28 days later. Wow. Yeah, once we had the diagnosis, um, we understood that our some of his um, systems, his liver, his kidney, they were already beginning to fail. And so he was sent home from the hospital from that set of testing on hospice. There's literally no time to wrap our minds around this. Mm-mm. All we knew is that it would be impossible for mom to care for him alone because he was weak at this time. So, Wow. You know, the personality type often that can become an alcoholic, mm. um, they're very wonderful, loving, compassionate, kind people usually. Mm. They um, are very gifted mm-hmm. and they have anxiety. Absolutely. And so when they're young, if they, they find alcohol before they find something else to help them cope. That's it. Alcohol, uh, well, it's like liquid courage. It kind of mm-hmm. calms them down. They feel like one one drink or one glass, you know, one beer or two. Mm. But even after one, they feel more like everyone else. They yeah. feel more relaxed, more calm. And so, and if it just worked like that, that would be great. Mm. But alcohol over time makes you more anxious. Yeah. And starts causing insomnia. But often these are people who turn their anger inward mm-hmm. because it's not really acceptable to them. Oh, yeah. And so they turn all that inward, and they're really nice people. They're more pleaser-type people. Mm-hmm. Um, they turn it inward, and it slowly just turns. And they say that personality type is a kind of a C personality type, meaning cancer-prone. Mm. Because they turn all those bad emotions inward. Because yes. they don't want to handle them inappropriately, what they call mm-hmm. inappropriately, which is bad anger. Yeah. And so they, they go in. They don't really, they haven't really learned the skills of healthy coping with anger. Right. How to just handle it. You know, it's a God-given emotion, anger. And it's not the anger that's the problem. It's what you do with it that's mm-hmm. the problem. And so they don't really, they don't want to be this yelling, inappropriate, loud person. Um. Because maybe they had that when they were younger, or their example of that was in, unacceptable to them. Mm-hmm. And so they go inward. And yes. they don't really, and then when they, and drinking, you know, the anxiety starts from turning it inward mm-hmm. um, more. Well, I guess it starts more from the giftedness if they're more obsessive. Mm. Giftedness is a wonderful thing. Obsessive compulsive is a blessing. Mm. It yeah, can but, just become with stress and trauma long term. It, it's uh, impairing and can become yeah. a disorder. And so the drinking can help that. Mm-hmm. It, and it's too bad that over time it can make them so sick. Oh, absolutely. And it's exactly as you say that, you know, when you talk about neurochemicals and serotonin in the brain, which is our happy, feel good uh, chemical. You know, and dopamine, another happy feel good. Mm-hmm. Now, when you drink those, it, it uh, heightens those levels of chemicals. But over time, as you drink, you actually lower the amount of chemicals that you need. And so, uh, addictions they they take your dignity first, and then they take everything else. Right, slowly but surely. And it's a very helpless feeling watching somebody. Uh, go into this cycle because that it is a shame-based um, addiction and it's not something they want to talk about. It's the last thing they want to be. And um, I was, 
I was lucky in the in this that you know when I kind of went through a hard time in my life, my father looked at me and he said, "You know, Jen, I see the heap of trouble you're in." This is when I was maybe a teenager. He said, "But I also, in my mind, I can see the woman that you're going to become. I can't wait to see what God's going to do with you." And so he was a man of great vision, and he gave it to me. And at the end of his life, prior to him getting sober, I looked at him and I said, "You know, Dad, you see all these other men in your life, and they're giants." And you would never compare yourself to them. But to me, you are just like him. I said, the saddest thing that I think could ever happen is you dying, feeling that you are not a giant of a man because you have this addiction. That was a wonderful thing to say to him. So did he become that giant of a man quickly? Well, you know, there was a series of events um, because God's relentless, you know. He once he declares a victory on the li- on the life, he he pursues. He pursued my dad. That was one of many conversations that happened in a short period of time. And before we knew it, Dad was circling around Valley Hope and Grapevine, and uh, checking himself in. Which I would have I would have never bet on that. I would have, I hoped for it with all my heart, but I would have never bet. That that is such a wonderful thing that he came through that. Mm -hmm. And he came through it, and uh, you had so many blessings with him coming through it, and you got to know Dad. Yes. And you got him to be uh, such an important place in your life at an important time, to be the man you always wanted him to really be. Mm -hmm. And, um, And when he died, he died with dignity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, that's why I say I'm still celebrating, is because once you have a victory like that, nobody can come and take that from you. Nobody can take that from you. No. And I, and I think that for you, everything you've been through, and you've gotten into speaking about this, you travel, you write about it, mm-hmm. um, and it's turned you into just, it's amazing how all these trials and um, the celebrating and the blessings mm-hmm. and the empowerment mm-hmm. has really helped you bless so many other people. And um, I just thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure and my privilege. And we will have you on again oh. <laughs> to talk more about Jenny's accomplishments since her dad's death and everything that's happened in her family since then. A lot of wonderful blessings. She did have another child. Mm. And um, we just would love for you. You can go to her website, JennyEaston.com. She has a book called, coming out, The yeah. Purest Gift. Yes. And you can find out about that on her website. And thank you so much for joining us with Living Well. Take care, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you again for joining us. Living Well with Ann Beal airs live every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait to see you again next week. 